Hey, everybody, we're talking to Weston Wilson today. What an amazing guy. He's an MMA fighter and the founder of Combat Labs. Has some incredible stories about the journey to becoming a professional fighter. He's a great new friend of mine. You don't want to miss this incredible conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. Your host, Dallas Burnett dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Listen as guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you are in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way, but it's finding out how to unlock the last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Dallas Burnett, sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers Barber Chair in Thrive Studios. But more importantly, we have a great guest today. He's a guy who knows what it is like to step into the ring and face some hard-hitting adversaries, but also knows how fighting relates to life and business. Welcome to the show, Weston. Hey, Dallas. How's it going? Oh, man, it's, it's going so good because you are here on the last 10%. I've, I've been really excited about us having this conversation because I am, I'm a fan of MMA because I remember when it all got started and just how far it's come since then and how it was almost a novelty. And now it's this, this global, man, it's unbelievable. So I'm just so excited to talk to you today. Tell us, how does one go about deciding they're going to be an MMA fighter? What was that like for you? Yeah, I knew pretty young. So the first time I ever watched MMA, I was in fifth maybe sixth grade. So this is like 1999, 2000, something like that. Um, when my dad, my dad worked for the DEA and there was a guy in his office named Jim Waddell and Jim would bring in like all the old UFC tapes of like Pete Ortiz, Evan Tanner, Tank Abbott, like guys that like are not mainstream anymore. Well, Tito is. So we would, we'd go to his office and hang out. Oh, you guys got to check this out. You, you, you boys would love, love this. Like, you know, and this is like when WWE was big, when Goldberg was big, I was living oh, in Oklahoma yeah. at the time. And so Goldberg was like, I think he's from Oklahoma. So anyways, I was like, okay, I like this more than I like the, the fake wrestling stuff. Um, you gotta be careful who you say that to. That's a very that's a very controversial statement. <laughs> well, they're they're now all one company. UFC and WWE's one company. Oh, okay. That's a twenty two billion dollar company. Oh wow. That's incredible. PKO. That's incredible. Um so yeah, and I I the guy would convince me to start wrestling and and so I started wrestling and then I think it was my freshman year of high school, the ultimate fighter came out and uh I'd watch it from episode one all the way through and I was like, man, I'm going to do this. I told all my friends I was going to do it. I had like, it's, it's funny because like the guys I wrestled with, my training partners, like the guys who were my weight class, they, they were like, no, you're not good enough. And the guys that like I was friends with a lot of team that were a little bit bigger or maybe older, they're like, you hate to do it. Just keep working, you know? And so I found it funny that, that like people are, you know, 
on my level that I work with every day, I track me from that. And then the people who were above me, whether it be older than me or, or they were more encouraging. And they're like, yeah, you got it, man. Just keep it up. How about that? That's fascinating that your peers were less encouraging. But we had that level of rivalry because we mm. were the same weight. So we were competing. We were constantly competing to who was going to be starting. Mm. So it's just, uh, so, can't be so, can't be, but so close and, and so encouraging to the guy that you're trying to eat out for stuff. So, I, so did you wrestle a lot in high school? Uh, yeah, high school I, team I wrestled and... our team. So I was in Virginia at the time when I was in high school and our team was a top 30 team in the nation. So we were, we were wrestling all over the U S private schools, public schools in the summer times, we'd wrestle against a lot of like D two, D three college, just to get that experience of like competing at the higher level. Wait a minute. You um, as a high school student were wrestling college athletes in summer times. We were living in Stafford, Virginia. So Quantico Marine base was right there. And so the Marines would come in and wrestle with our program quite a bit as well. Yeah, so we were gracious. constantly training with guys that were older, bigger, you know, fully developed <laughs> and, and just getting smashed by the game. Yeah. But that was like where I really learned about hard work and just nothing things out, gritting things out because coaches were pretty hard to know. We, they don't coach today, but like we get beat up with mistakes. We would like the, the coaches would get on the mat or beat us up if we were not like focused enough and. Literally with broomsticks. They would literally take broomsticks to you. Oh my goodness. I remember one time we, we did not, as a team, did not do well at a tournament. We drove six hours back home and parents waited to pick us up. Things like that. Coach like, no, go back home. We're going to, we're going to grind them out for another two hours. And I this out this like you practice for another two hours straight. No, Oh my, after you'd already gone to a match and then driven, drove six hours back home, then you got another two hours just grinding in practice with. Yeah. Yeah. It work. was some wild times. <laughs> oh my. But you survived the crucible yep. and not yep. only did you survive it, but apparently you survived it enough to want to keep doing it, even do it more. So. Yeah. So we moved to Brazil there? my senior year. We moved to Brazil my senior year. And so I couldn't wrestle anymore and all the work I had done to get like notice from colleges it all went away. And so my dad feeling bad was like, well, you've always wanted to do MMA. So you find a gym and I'll, I'll support you in doing MMA. So I was like 17, I think. So I found a gym and I was just a young American kid, not speaking any Portuguese and they basically beat me up there and I was used to it already from my years of wrestling until I finally started getting to where I could think with them. the journey's been going on ever since. So I've been doing this, I'm 34, I, almost 35 actually. And I've been doing this since I was 17. Man. So would you say at this point in time, everybody's going to get the jitters or nerves before a fight, but you've been doing this so long. Do you still get jitters before a fight or do you have Every single time, every I single still get time, jitters. and I'm like 30 pro fights, like, or not 30 pro fights, excuse me. I've got 26 pro fights, and 26. then I have seven or eight amateur fights as well. So I've done this, I've, I've made this walk to the ring or to the cage. I didn't also have a pro boxing win under my record, it's boxing. So I've made this walk so many times. <laughs> 
and, and even for wrestling, like I, I've made the walk so many times, probably hundreds, hundreds of times. And I still get nervous every single time, whether it's wrestling, whether it's MMA, whether it's boxing, whether it's kickboxing, I like <laughs> want always to try to convince my mind, like, why are we doing this? This is the last one. There's just so much better ways to spend your time. I'll always like have this internal conflict in my mind and like constantly telling myself like, okay, we, we don't have to do this anymore or, oh, things don't go the way we want it to in the cage. We have this excuse. And so you're constantly like battling and then eventually the cage door closes and that first punch is thrown and you're like, all right, everything's on you. Like it doesn't matter. <laughs> or, you know, whatever happens, happens. <laughs> So when, before you're going through all this stuff, just you're having a mental battle. And then once they close the door and the first punch, you're just like, nah, this is good. It's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Like everything goes through your mind. And like, I've worked with sports psychologists and things like that. And like, we ride out, okay, what is it? What is it? The real fear? Is it losing? Is it getting hurt? I mean, dang it, it's all the above. <laughs> My UFC debut was probably by far the, that was the worst. That, that was the worst ever. Oh, your UFC I debut remember. was your worst yeah. in terms of what do you mean? Just in the like nerves? The anxiety. The just anxiety. anxiety. Was yeah, I mean, like, you know, something might it's work. UFC. Achieving your dream. I could see how that's going to amp you up a little bit. I was working towards this for 17 years. And, and I finally get the call. I, I'm an older prospect. And people are sending me like all this, this hate. There was all these articles written about me, like how it's like the worst ever. And then like, everyone's like, texting me like random people just hitting me up on social media hey you're the biggest underdog on the card i'm putting money on you and all this other stuff so i remember i got the call and my wife was out of town with my kids and we're all excited we had it finally happen it's crazy it's a lifetime dream that had my wrestling coaches from high school tell me that i would never make it training partners from my school team told me I didn't. you finally make it you're all excited and then you start seeing things but all this, like all these media people just telling you like how you're not worth it. You're not worthy to be in there. All this other stuff. I don't even understand that. What does it matter? You've worked all this time. You're there, you make it. And then you haven't even had your first UFC fight. Why in the world is people going to hate on you? That's amazing that, but it, I guess that just comes if you're in the public, you're just going to. I, I think it's because like when somebody, I've thought about this a lot recently. When somebody says they're going to do something, usually you're, you're in support of them. Yeah, that's cool. Because it reminds you of your own goals that you've set for yourself. Yeah. When somebody reaches their goal, uh, now, especially if you don't think highly of that person, it, it then makes them, makes them upset because it's like, it, it reminds them of their failures because they might not have reached their goal. Man. And for me, I was average build. I was never like super athletic. I was never one of those kids that was like deemed to be in this situation. Like I, I should have never made it to UFC. Like I was never athletic enough. I was never like the best on the team. I was never the kid that like the only thing I had over everyone else is I could outwork. Wow. I knew maybe I could outwork anybody and I was not going to quit and I was never going to give up. So I think there was like a lot of just hate towards me because of that. I, I'm not one of those shiny prospects and I'm not one of those. So I remind people uh, like the average man of like them having these high goals and not, you know, it's like, I think it's a jealousy thing. 
Like for me, I get motivated by other people's success. Like when people sure. are successful, I'm like, man, that's awesome. Like I can do this instead of being like, oh, they shouldn't do it. They don't deserve it. You know? Yeah. I, I, had I, somebody tell me, I had somebody tell me when you're in leadership position, you got half the people that's cheering for you to succeed and the other half cheering for you to absolutely crash and burn. They're all cheering, but half's cheering for you and half's cheering against you. Don't matter what you do. And, and I, that's definitely what you experienced with all that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. It, it, and it, it, it's, it's what you said is a hundred percent true. Like half the people are cheering to succeed. Half the people are cheering for you to, to fail. And I, I used to be that person. I would get really jealous of other people's successes. Yeah. I used to as a kid, I was like, man, I hate Tom Brady. Like, I don't like Tom Brady's. Now that I'm older, I'm like, Tom Brady's amazing. And, and like, I really relate to Tom Brady because he wasn't like the most athletic guy. He wasn't that prospect. And then all of a sudden he reached, you know, he reached that legendary goat status. He's the one. Yeah. He's the man. Just, and it wasn't because he was highly recruited or had the total package when he came out. It just, you know, just kept grinding and getting better and better. So I, I, I love that. I think that's great. Now we just had a guest on the last episode. Um, he was a professor, he was a PhD in the act of rituals. And he talked about how there was a lot of people in sports that have pre rituals before, during, or after some type of sporting event. Got to ask you because like this is, a, this is our own, we're going to do our own case study here on the last 10%. Do you have any pre-fight rituals that you go through or you would do before a fight so or during I, or after? You don't necessarily need rituals. Yeah. Like it's just insecurities and, and things like that. But then there are things where it's like, well, you just want to kind of make it uh, the same as yeah. well. Yeah. So that it, it's always. So it's like a weird, it's a weird balance that, that I try to hold. But in terms of like, in terms of like rituals, I would say after the weight cut is like my, my ritual. Okay. So I've cut, I've just cut 30 pounds in a couple of weeks, 10 to 15 of that being in 24 hours, um, oh completely dehydrate your body. So I do have a couple of rituals like after the weight cut. Now in terms of like free fight. Uh, I don't have that many rituals, but yeah, post, post weight cut, um, I do all the regular hydration stuff that they, they give me, but then like the night before the fight, I'll usually have a gummy bears and a root beer and a slice of pizza. <laughs> I know it's like not nutritionally, you're not supposed to have that stuff like right before, but that's usually what I do like the night before gummy bears, a root beer and a pizza. But the night before the yeah. fight. And I never, and the thing is, I never drink root beer house. I, like, I never drink root beer. Like, it's not like my drink of choice, but like, I don't know, after weight cut, that's what I prefer. That is awesome. And hey, you know what? If you've lost 30 pounds in like two weeks, you can drink whatever you want, man. And if a root beer is what it needs to be, then go for it. That's awesome. That's yeah. so great. So gummy bears, root beers, and pizza. Next time I have some gummy bears, I'm going to be like, ah. Ah, uh, yeah. It's, this is Weston's, uh, uh, food of choice yeah. before a fight. But I eat gummy bears all the time. Like gummy bears yeah. are, are my thing. <laughs> and it's funny because my nutritionist actually, he actually said that gummy bears are actually good. Post weight case, like gummy bears are actually good. The root beer, not so much, but, and the pizza is <laughs> definitely not, but the gummy bears are good. The gummy bears are good. All right. Well then I won't yeah. feel, I will feel no guilt the next time I just, you know, Buy a bag of gummy bears and uh, rock with it because I'll say, hey, yeah, if there's, if there's like a sweet snack you want, like gummy bears are actually pretty good. 
Gummy bears are pretty good. Okay. Well, there you go. See, we've learned something. So that's cool. You've got a post-weight cut ritual of gummy bears, root beer, and pizza. Um, Now, you've described your journey. You had gone to Brazil. You found a gym there. And ultimately, you worked through that. And then did you just continue down that path to MMA? Because that seems like it's a pretty big gap between that and like landing in the UFC kind of yeah. transpired through those. So went to, I went to school. My, my mom was like this, especially back in like 2005, 2006, 2007, right? Fighting was counterculture. You know, there wasn't a lot yeah. of people with degrees. A lot of the guys were pretty rough around the edges. And so my mom was like, look, I'm really concerned. You know, no girl can marry a, a fighter. Like you, and you'll never be able to provide for your family. Like, and so they're okay. So I went to school, I got my degree and I was, those fighting and training in school as well. And I was like, it's funny because I, I went to BYU, Brigham Young University and okay. I always gave special treatment to all the athletes. And I was like, what special fighter? But like, I wasn't like popular, really like big, big time. Like it was all regional stuff. Yeah, I wouldn't get any special treatment or anything like that. And I'm really annoyed and frustrated. And now, like, BYU, they call me all the time. They do, like, you know, interest pieces and, and everything else. Because I'm the only <laughs> BYU student see, or BYU alumni in the fire you see. So now they, they kind of, like, you know, special treatment that I never got in college. Like, I never get to, like, skip exams. Yeah. Went along, she really wanted me to, to get a degree and, and promise her that fighting would not be full-time career. And so I made that promise. And so fighting is not my full-time career. It's not, even though like I fight, you know, for the UFC now, like it, it, the money I make from UFC is actually like very minimal to what I, I make outside of the UFC, like through my entrepreneurship and then, and, and a couple of the other companies I work for. You know, that's a great point because you described a path to success ultimately fighting professionally in the UFC. And I think that when people watch television, they see the UFC, they see the NFL, the NBA, they just assume that everybody, I think a lot of people can mistake what success looks like. And um, just, it's so interesting to hear because many times the stories of success don't reflect the pageantry uh, that you see on the television, right? It's the behind the scenes, the grind to not only to get there, but even like what you just said, Hey, look, I'm a professional fighter. I get paid to fight in the UFC, but oh yeah, I make more money outside in business and entrepreneurial ventures than I do for fighting. So I mean, that's just a really cool, that's a really cool thing. So let's talk about that a little bit because you work in the IT sector and had a cool way of marrying both your professional career in IT and, and the MMA into something called combat labs. What in the world is combat labs? Yeah. Promising my mom, I would get a full-time job and, and everything else. Combat labs actually isn't my full-time job. It's more of a, a side hustle, but my, I think my biggest advantage in, in life has just been solutioning and, and finding a way to make things work. And, and being like that, more of a strategist. And, and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to fight full time. So I wanted to find a career path that would be flexible enough to where I could still train full time. 
So I happen chance into software and into product management where it's pretty flexible. And a lot of the companies I worked for, I would do a split shift. So I'd work like part-time in the morning, part-time at night. And then I'd have the whole afternoon uh, to train. And, and like when most pro fighters are, are training, which a lot of us, we train, we have a training session, usually mid mornings, 11, 12 o'clock. And then we do another training session at night, closer to when we would fight eight, nine o'clock at night. Oh, so the companies I was working for, the product managers would work a split shift. So we'd work like 9 AM to noon, and then we'd work 11 to one, two in the morning. Wow. So I was able to work with split shift and, and that really helped. And that's where I started getting knowledge of, of software and software development and then product management. So when COVID hit, when COVID hit, there was a hundred percent of the fighters, but only 20% of the shows going on. So let that number sink for a second. So when you're not, the UFC was still going, but you have to get fights to get into the UFC. And at the time, like I was coming off of two losses and I had never come off of two losses before. And I was a little bit older. So I was kind of depleted. Like my record wasn't like the best at the time. And then all of a sudden COVID hits and a lot of people in that situation think, oh, okay, I'm 30 years old. I'm my record seven and five. Like I lost the two big chances I needed to win in order to like get to that next level. I lost those. I, I should just give up. But I looked at COVID as like, the great reset. I was like, all right, this is the great mm. reset. Like I'm going to restart my career in, in fighting. And so I said, what can I do that no fighter can do? And I was like, I'm way like strategically with business and software. I, I'm, I'm way above everybody else because there's not a lot of fighters that, that have that background. And so I was like, what's the big like thing? There's only 20% or there's, there's 80% less opportunity to fight now. So how can I position myself to be the most desirable fighter? And, and back then pre COVID, it was how many tickets can you sell? How much money can you make the promotion? That, that was the, the thing. And I've never been a huge ticket seller because I, my, my thing is I'd rather just focus on the fights, but I had a huge network of promoters that I'd worked with and I'd helped and I consulted with. And, and so that's what I've always done is I've always gotten to work with different promoters and so I always looked at it as I was a backroom guy. They would put me on their cards as a favor because I, I would do a lot of free work for them and things like that. So I could cash in favors. Yeah. So when COVID hit, I stringed up a white label software to do pay-per-view. And there was only at the time, there's only one pay-per-view company that was, and they were taking 50% of all pay-per-view revenue. So now the whole script is. We can do shows, but we can't have people there. So we have to have this pay-per-view model. So I hit the market super fast and I start offering it for free. And I start telling all these promotions, dude, I'll do it for free. You just have to get me or my teammates on your cards. Wait a minute. Uh, hold, on, so hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me, wait, wait a minute. Well, let me stop you for right there. So I, I just got to, <laughs> I want to make sure everybody just followed what you were saying. You said COVID happens. And to this point, everyone in the industry, in the fighting industry, the whole industry, because of COVID, shrank in just the, the entertainment space. So there was only 20% of the fights that were going on were from the original number. So there was a dramatic decrease. And at the same time, those fights were being put on the pay-per-view because it was absolutely necessary because you couldn't sell out the live events in the, in the arena anymore. 
during that time. So the pay-per-view was the absolute necessity. And you literally, they were taking 50% of the revenue on pay-per-view. And you literally said, I've got an option for you. And you designed quickly your own pay-per-view like mm-hmm. platform. And then yeah. you went to these and said, I'll give it to you for free instead of 50% of your revenue. I'll do it for free. You just get me on the ticket and let me fight. Yep. Yep. That's exactly <laughs> what I did. That's awesome. And so then all of a sudden, like back then, pre-COVID, like fighters didn't have a lot of negotiating power. Like you either take the fight or you don't take the fight. If you don't take the fight, then the promotion will never work with you again. I know all of a sudden had all the cards. So I took all that power back and I, I held all the cards. And it's like when people, like when I made it to UFC and people were talking trash on me, they, they don't realize all the work that I put in that's different than any other fighter. And so I got all the, the matchups I wanted. So I got, I started getting favorable matchups and fights that I knew I, I would win. And, and then all of a sudden these promoters all started using it. So I started charging them like 10, 15, 20%. So I was like, all right, I'll take 20% or 15% of, of your revenue. And it just grew and grew all by word of mouth. I did zero marketing. And, and even to this day, I've done zero marketing. And I probably work with 20, 20 to 25 promotions in all combat sports. Like I just signed a new promotion that does armored knights fighting lords and shields. And so like <laughs> the whole business just like the whole business just started blowing up. And during COVID, I think I was the most active fighter during COVID. Like guys were either not fighting or only fighting once a year. I think I had six from 2020, from 2020 to 2022. I think I had a total of eight fights. Good gracious. Nine fights, maybe. That's incredible. That's awesome. That's awesome. And your record, you got, you said you got favorable fights. So you're, I went from seven and five to 16 is that only nine or two, I think. And nine and two. Goodness two. gracious. So then all of a sudden I started getting noticed and getting like turret, like I was on the radar again and, and things like that. But it was, I took a different approach than every other fighter. And so some people don't respect it. Some people respect it. Like people who understand like what I did. Oh, uh, that was brilliant. Are you kidding me? I, so I, I took I've a business approach. Problems. I took a, a business approach, a strategic approach to fighting. And I use COVID to my advantage. And I, I think a lot of times we look at bad things and we think, oh, it's a bad thing. Mm. But I look at bad things and I look at it as there's a lot of opportunity. And then fighting, there's conditions that we point as bad. If you're on the bottom, but some guy's on top of you, like we, we look at that as bad. I look at it and most of my wins actually come because I let a guy take me down and they get overconfident and they get overzealous. Like, oh, I'm going to fish the fire, I'm going to fish the fire. And when they tell, they deflate. And so I have a really good defense in those bad positions. And I also have really good offense in those bad positions. And so that's been my, my, my biggest strength is I can work in bad conditions. And I think it's from the years of getting beat up on the wrestling mats by coaches and teammates. <laughs> I can thrive in those bad conditions and I can find the best opportunities to succeed. And that's what I always look at is, okay, yes, we look at this as bad, but what's the opportunities? What can I do? What can I reverse engineer in this bad position to make it into a positive? And so that's what I did with COVID. That's what I did. I, that's what I do with my actual style of fighting. 
I always try to find a bad position and find a way to exploit it. Because uh, I had a coach who used to tell me, what has you can be had. And that means somebody's got my arm and they're trying to get me an arm bar. Break that down. What are they sacrificing to take your arm? Oh, mm. they're committing a full body to one appendage, whereas I have three more appendages I can use. And so there's different things that I can do to attack. Oh, man. And so I always go through that process of what has you can be had. And I think, okay, what can I do? Like, how can I manipulate the situation to my advantage? I love that quote, by the way, what has you can be had. That's fantastic. But I think that your approach is just intriguing. I love your perspective. And I think that it is very entrepreneurial. I have learned a lot from a lot of different mentors, both but on the just, business side. For me, I obsess about everything. MMA is my obsession. So I needed to know everything like fighting, managing fighters, coaching, how to run a promotion. And so I've done it all. I've literally, I, I ran a college, my internship. I put on a charity fight between Mitt Romney and Evander Holyfield. So I've, I've done it all. I've, that, that charity night, I think we raised $1.5 million, but I probably, gosh, did they actually literally fight each other? No, it was all just, there was, <laughs> we did, we did have an actual fights leading up to that fight, but that was all. It was a gimmicky fight, but it still raised a ton of money. Good for you, man. That was just for one of their charities that they, they have. Oh, okay. Okay. So they knew everybody. It was all in good fun. That's awesome. Yeah, man. That's so, is that where combat labs came from? So you were saying you, you did all these promotions is that's good. Yeah. That's so that was combat Lab. cast at the time. And then it got to a point where I brought on a business partner. He was actually my old boss, the company that we had worked for had gotten acquired. And so we we're both, I was already doing combat cats at the time and he was giving me a lot of advice on, okay, do this, do that. So he was pretty familiar already. So we got together, well, what can we do to expand it? What can we do to grow the business? And so we actually transformed from just pay-per-view to doing tickets, doing an EMS and event management software. So we do like marketing and accounting and all sorts of things, like all in one platform. If you were they come to me and say, Hey, I know nothing about MMA, but I want to, I want to put on a promotion. I can be like, use my software. We'll walk you step by step on how to throw on a show and, and make money. How about that? That's amazing. Good for you. If you, if you need some support in promoting some events, where to go check out combat labs, we'll, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes so you guys can connect on that. Now. Over the course of this time, and which is amazing because you've been working a job that's like swing shift, multiple crazy hours, to working in the morning and then having a break and then working till late at night. You're training in the morning, training at night, but you've, you have met your wife. And yeah. So, so I actually had taken a break off of fighting my first two years of college because I, I was really struggling in college. Yeah. And. So, so I actually grew up with my wife. We were kids together in Oklahoma. Really? And so we were kids. My wife's a little bit older than me. I was probably 13. She was 15, 16, something like that. Okay. All right. We're at church activity and the activity was like, it was like a water balloon fight or something like that. She's like, well, I'm not participating. I just got a spray tan for prom. Got it. <laughs> Mess with the spray punk, tan, man. Being a punk kid. And her little sister was my age too. And so she maybe you should do it. It pissed her off. And I was like, all right. So I just take a water balloon and I snap her right in the face with it. Oh. I don't think oh. it was spray tan actually. I don't know. I don't. 
Oh. Anyways, she goes off. She's all pissed off. She's angry. And then she comes back. My back's turned. She comes back, tackles me, and starts eating me up. <laughs> I finally I wrestle her off, but I'm like, I was a pop back then. I was doing like, whatever. I'm sure the thing. So I'm getting ready to hit her right in the face. I finally saw her after me. And I got lined up, ready to hit her in the face. And out of nowhere, I get tackled by a leader. And you don't hit girls. I was like, I will. I don't care. That's hilarious. Now so this, been, I thought I, you were joking. You were. Actually. Oh, that's so funny. We have that in common. We both have three daughters. But this was not like a. I was thinking like she jumped on your back. You were playing around or something. She was serious. Like she, she came at no, you. Oh, we were dead. So a, she ripped my shirt up. Everything. Um, <laughs> so there was only three women that. Three women in my life that have ever beat me up is my mom, my older sister, and my wife. Hey, you know what? They can wear that badge with honor, and you've got, you got some respect. As an MMA person, I think that you would respect that now. So, yeah, <laughs> that's a great story. That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. Think Move Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. Leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams. We help technical managers be more relational. And we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful. We created the app to help more organizations develop their people, build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. So you guys, after you didn't have an altercation there or after the altercation was over, you guys just dated through high school and college? or No, actually, we moved away suddenly. I was only like 14 when we moved away. So several years have passed, almost a decade actually. And... I was in college and one of her people she knew, she was in my class and he's like, Hey, do you know Jennifer Parker? So I was like, Oh yeah, I went to yeah church with her back in the day. And then she added me on Facebook and then I could, I was like, I would reach out to her. And so I was like, Hey, I'm sorry about the water balloon thing. And then but no, I'll just so wow. walk in up getting married and having three kids. How about that? Good for y'all. Good for y'all. Married with three kids, three daughters of all things. Yes, three girls. That's awesome. So now let's talk about, let's talk about you. You've had some time to reflect on your journey in MMA. You've had some time to essentially develop this new business with Combat Labs and working in IT space. What are some of the things that you feel like you bring out of the the world of fighting to the business world like you've talked a lot about some different mindsets but what do you think you've learned that you share you would share with business leaders or coaches some things that you bring from the fighting world into the business world yeah there there's so many parallels i think i get it's really hard um to like 
share all of them, but I, I want to share all of them. Uh, there's so many life lessons and, and business lessons I've learned through fighting. And it's funny because in high school in Brazil, it was a, a private school. And so it's one of those weird, not traditional American schools. And we, I had this class called the theory of knowledge and we talked about learning a lot and, and I'm somebody that I'm passion driven. So if it's something around one of my passions, I'll learn everything and everything there is to it. And then I'll start making parallels that way. So I hate math, but if you like made math about fighting, then I'll love math <laughs> in regards to fighting. Sure. And so that's what I've done through business is I've related everything from fighting. Like, oh, okay, well, I do some fighting. And so if I do that in, in business, maybe it'll work. Right. And so that's been my, my big thing. Um, so there's a lot of lessons, but one of the, the greatest lessons I think I've learned is I had a wrestling coach. He ended up passing away of cancer my freshman year. His name was Joe Piano. And he would always tell me, look, you don't have to learn every move. He said, just have a handful of moves that you've learned so well that it becomes like breathing. Mm -hmm. and, and so I've always taken that approach is, okay, how do I learn something to where it becomes like breathing? Well, you have to do it thousands upon thousands of times mm. to where you don't even have to think about it anymore. And so I've always taken that approach to everything is if there's something I need to learn, I'm just going to do it over and over and over again until it just becomes second nature. And so whether that's road mapping and business, <laughs> it's working with individuals or, or holding a meeting or talking in public or, or whatever it is, I'm going to just do it over and over again, as much as I possibly can until it becomes easy and I don't to think about it. I think that's a great point. And I love your approach on that. We've had guests in the past that said every job has these two or three things that for that role, whatever that role is, there's two or three, at least two or three things that you just got to be great at, like best in the world at, if you're going to be successful. And that's whether you own a business or whether you work for them. Now, it's nice if you have 10 or 12 things, if you're starting a business, you better be getting a lot of different things. But, but as the companies grow and things get more specialized, every role that you end up having, there's two or three things that's going to be great. And I love it because you're saying, hey, I, I just want to find those things, whatever those things are, and I'm going to become great at them from just making them like, it's so much like breathing that that's just what, that's what I'm going to repeat them so many times it becomes like breathing. And I think that's really great that it's that focus. It just shows a lot of focus and intensity and consistency, which is driving that capability and confidence that you have when you're in business or whether you're in the ring. So I think that's great. I think that's really great advice. I think that's great advice. So if you're listening today and you're thinking about takeaways from Weston, then you've got several, you got to flip, you got to flip the, the obstacle or the, into an opportunity and you've got to, what can, what has you can be had. And then yep. also you've got to turn around and you've got to really understand and know what's the most important things that you need to be doing in business. That's going to make the greatest impact. And then you need to do them so many times. It feels like breathing. I think that's I think that's fantastic advice. If you and had the last, oh, I would say is another big thing is making sure you have the right people. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I, I really like the whole industry of combat sports. I really tried to make sure that I aligned myself with the right people. And so right now I have a fantastic team, Steven Wonderboy Thompson, who's world famous fighter, 
and Greenville legend and his dad, Ray Thompson. So they've really helped me and, and developed me and, and taught me a lot too about, they, they run, I think it is like the most successful karate school in, in the United States. Like one of the largest wow. karate schools in the United States. Just being around them and seeing like how their business acumen and how they've been able to take their passion and turn it into an extremely successful business. That, that helped me a lot as, as well. Having the right coaches have helped me pinpoint weaknesses and come up with better strategies and things like that. I think that's important in business too, is whether you're in a leadership position or whether you're in a individual contributor position, like making sure you have the right people to support you. I think you need to surround yourself with the right people because I would not be where I'm at if I didn't have the right people in place. There's so many coaches who've helped me and, and I've moved on to different coaches and, and I, I would not be where I'm at if it weren't for there's, I can look at each coach I've had through the years and be like, well, I get this from this coach, I get that from that coach, I get this from this coach. And even teammates, this teammate taught me, this teammate pushed me to this level, this, and just making sure you have the right people and that you use them in the way that they will succeed and their success makes you succeed as well. Yes. That makes sense. Oh, that so that's always sense. something I've always really tried to, to focus on is just making sure that I have the right people like for Yeah, that's awesome. That's a, that's a great, that's a great analogy as well. If you're, when you think about that and you talked about surrounding yourself with a great team, you talked about having people that are being successful and their success makes you successful. When you think about high performing teams, what do you think separates them? Because you're a part of a high performing team. You're the, the tip of the spear. What do you think separates them from the rest? I think it's a couple of things. Like I, I definitely think they have the, the right people. Like I just talked about for me, we talked about, do I get nervous before fights? I get super nervous, but I have coach T Ray Thompson in my corner and he's a very hard nosed person. And I respond well to that. And he makes me not as nervous. I, I remember Pro boxing debut. I had zero boxing fights, and the kid I was fighting was 11. And I was brought oh into leagues. And everybody was like, Why are you doing this? Like, you're crazy. Why are you doing this? Like, you're so close to UC. You're being hurt. Yeah, the parents were like, We're against this. Like, you shouldn't be boxing. That's not your sport. And I went in there, and I had Coach T in my corner. And he, like, every excuse I can, he, he put it in every excuse. And, uh, Walked out and he's like, Sorry, me. You just gotta be me. <laughs> I know the first round, I win the first round. And he's like, All right, you won the first round. Quit acting like you lost or quit acting like you just yelling at me the whole time. And I'm like, I don't want to let this man down. I just can't let this man down. So I start performing even more. Second round, I win the second round. And the guy, a bloody beast at this point. He's like, uh, I have my legs crossed the stool. He's quick crossing your legs. He's in, and this looks like boy. He's in a tunnel. And he's like, just yelling at me. And so like that gave me a lot of encouragement. But the other thing I've noticed with you, myself. So funny. Uh, that yeah. It gives you a lot of encouragement for someone to be yelling, don't cross your legs. Don't be this. Uh, Time to be yeah, a man. So many, Stop. so many funny little things that he'll say to me. <laughs> and, and, but like, we have a father son relationship. Like coach T is like my, he, he's, like my second dad and, and so and the other thing though is like consistency in doing those small and simple things i think that's a, mm. a a big thing is you have to do those small and simple things 
they add up over time. I think American culture, we're so, ever since the Cold War, we, we got into giganticism, like bigger, better, best. Mm-hmm. But I think that really influences us because we're always trying to, I we want that direct result, right? We yeah. forget that it's so small and simple things that in, in our, I think with high-performing teams, they're just so consistent and doing small things. They don't miss a practice. They don't miss a weightlifting session. They don't miss, if I were to do a thousand reps, like eventually like with a five pound weight, eventually that becomes too easy. And then I can do a thousand reps with a 10 pound weight and I can just move up from there. But each rep counts. It's, it's doing each rep that's going to build that muscle and yeah. build that strength. I think it, there's so small and simple things that, that bring that consist like that consistently doing those small and simple things. The, that's what makes teams do that nobody else is doing. Nobody else does. No, I think that's, I think that's a fantastic point. And it is true. I think, in, I think, I don't, I think the post cold war is a great example of that. It's where definitely it started. And I also think that social media hasn't helped. If anything, it's just accelerated that idea because it was like we've said before, you see everybody's best day every day. And you think that it's like you, you're, if you win a fight or something like that, that's going to be published and people's going to share it. And everybody's going to say, oh my gosh, he won this fight. I, it's almost like you were saying earlier, people get jealous, man, he's achieved this or he's achieved that. What have I done? And at the end of the day, it's what they don't see is all those, all those five and 10 pound weights that you've been lifting over and over and over and over again, all those days and hours of the gym that you've been doing the small things every single day to get to that moment, that peak. But they look at your, they bring up their social feed. They see your peak. They see the next guy's peak. They see the next guy's peak. And then they go, man, what am I doing? And, uh, yeah, all we're doing is looking at peaks. We're always looking. I I like what you said, but it's, we're always looking at everybody's best day. I look at other entrepreneurs and I'm like, they they built this million dollar, eight eight figure business, nine figure business. And yeah, they, they must be really lucky, but it's no, we didn't look at like the years that they grinded and yeah. hour days, the, the, the 16 hour days, like whatever it is, whatever those small and simple things that they were doing over time that built that. Yeah. It was in the music business. I say it's a, it's the, it takes 10 years of work to be an overnight success. <laughs> yeah. I think that's similar to MMA and every other aspect is that we see everyone's best days on social and it's, oh man, that must just have come easy for them. It's not, it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. So when you see someone that's, uh, that's hitting it, it's definitely, I love your perspective and your attitude that it comes from doing those small things well, being consistent and doing the small things well. So this is, man, this has just been a great conversation. I love your spirit. I love your mentality. I think your approach is spot on with the last 10%. You're definitely living in the last 10%. You're moving and, oh man, it's just encouraging. It's a very inspiring story. And I love the fact that you are bold about who you are and saying, look, I'm not the guy that should be here, but I'm going to be the guy that outworks everybody else. And that's what puts me in the room. And I think that should be very inspiring to the listeners is that, hey, whatever your preconceived notion of the perfect thing match for whatever you're doing, whether that's entrepreneurship or in business or in sports or whatever, that is a mental construct and everybody has strengths and weaknesses and you've got to find your strengths. And I love how you spend a lot of time saying what makes me 
me? What makes me strong? What is my strengths and how can I leverage those strengths to take this thing to the next level to accomplish my vision for my life? And uh, man, well done. Well played on that. So what's next for you in the MMA, coaching labs and everything else? Yes. My next fight is January 13th. January so the January 13th. January 13th. Yeah, in Vegas. Oh, man. And you already know who you're fighting. All that's already set up and everything ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. Signed contract yesterday. Um, oh, man. This is big news. This is big news. Okay, great. Yeah. So well, contract was signed yesterday. Everything is all settled. At least I, I think it is. Yeah. Time, we've been time moving to, forward with it. It'll be good, though. That's awesome. We'll definitely be cheering for you. 13th. Yep, January 13th. It'll be in Vegas. It'll be on ESPN. We, uh, we will definitely tune in and uh, you'll have to let us know how you do. And uh, we'll, we may have to have you back on and, and hash it out. This is really great. This has been good stuff. Listen, if people want to connect with you, they want to learn more about what you're doing, how, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah. Instagram is at Weston Wilton, W-E-S-T-I-N, uh, Wilson, W-I-L-S-O-N. I respond to most of my messages. If you instant message me, I'll usually respond. All right. That's great. So you can check out Weston, all his stories and his future fights on Instagram and the UFC. Thank you again for being on the last 10%. We appreciate your time today, Weston. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today on the last 10%. We hope you found today's content engaging and encouraging. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear the latest episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us so others will join our community. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. This podcast can be found globally in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Subscribe today. Plus, visit our website, join our email list, and discover resources and info for your business and team at thinkmovethrive.com. Thanks again for listening to The Last 10%.